Hey everyone. So for communion this morning, we're going to talk about walking in faith. Um, and I just had just recently this crazy thing happened that really made me realize what it meant to walk in faith. Um, over the Thanksgiving holiday, I had this crazy thing happen with my eyes and I was completely blind for three days. And then for another three days, I had some vision, but not a whole lot. Most of y'all know the story. Absolutely crazy event, right? Well, in during that time, I learned like a thousand things about myself. Like God was really obviously trying to teach me something. But one of the things that I noticed the most was uh, my daughter wanted to take me for a walk. And I was like, yeah, this would be awesome. And I was panicking the entire time. And at every step of the way, you're like, am I going to bump my shin? Am I going to hit my head? And you go into a shadow under a tree and you're like, bob and weave. And you're like, oh, oh no, I'm fine. And she's like, it's totally fine. We're in the middle of the road. And I'm like, we're in the middle of the road. Oh my God, what's going to happen? And like the whole time, like no matter what's going on, you're just in this panic, right? And I trust her and I love her. And she has never done wrong by me. And she, I know she's going to take good care of me. And yet, how can I possibly trust when I can't see, when I can't, when I am not in control? And it just, that was one of those things that really hit me that I have to be in control, that I don't believe in walking by faith, that my faith determines, I mean, my sight, my abilities determine my faith. Um, and it was just such a, a heart-wrenching, but also really deep, wonderful learning moment for me, you know, where I just was like, how, how many other ways am I like this? And so I really started examining who I am during this time. And uh, so this scripture is the, the scripture that came to mind, and it's 2 Corinthians 5, and it says, Therefore... We are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at, at, the body in, at home in the body or away from it. And this just spoke to me about how I have to be more comfortable with out of my body, with the future, with heaven, with being with God, and less comfortable with my body. And Tiffany's going to share some. Um, so I noticed in the scripture that Brian read that it talks a lot about confidence, um, but not confidence in our earthly bodies. Um, and one thing I noticed when Brian's eyes were when uh, infected is how much our emotional state can be tied to our physical abilities um, and just how we're not content with things um, when we're not in control of them, kind of what he was saying. Um, you know, we were praying the other day on our prayer walk just about how many things we just wake up and do and we don't even think about them. Um, one, just getting out of bed. I do think about that more lately because it's harder to get out of bed. Um, so, but prior to that, we just kind of, we just get up, we walk, we do, we, we do all these things with our physical bodies without even stopping to think what a miracle it is that we were able to use our legs today 
or what a miracle it is that we were able to use our hands or have our eyesight. We just expect that when we go to sleep and wake up, everything will be as it should. And that in a lot of ways is putting confidence in our earthly selves, not in God. Um, and so, you know, rather than boosting our confidence when these things are going well, it should humble us um, and it should make us have a deep gratitude for Jesus and even the small mercies that he provides. Um, rather than rejoicing in our abilities, we need to wake up with a desire to rely on God um, because that's the only thing that we really can count on. Um, one thing just to share and to, to ask you guys to pray for, um, one of my clients has a three-year-old and we had just taken pictures um, and then not a couple months, I think later, he just woke up and he was sick and, you know, they took him to the doctor and he has leukemia. Um, and they immediately had to move everything to Memphis to the hospital there. And so, you know, just thinking, Brian and I were praying and talking about that, just how one day you go to sleep and your children are fine. And the next day your, your jobs, your life, everything has to stop and move and change. Um, you know, and just a reminder that we can't just rely on ourselves and the things we can do and the things we control because it's all just temporary gifts from God. Um, and so just really reminding us to be grateful in the moment and to have faith in heaven and what's to come after this life. So bringing this back to communion, to Jesus, because that's what Jesus, communion is all about Jesus, right? And his life and who he is. And bringing that back to him, think about all the ways that he walked in faith and the way that he trusted more in God and in the earthly life than, I mean, in the heavenly life than in the earthly life, you know? Um, and that makes me think about the garden, you know? And he was terrified and he knew this was going to hurt and he knew this was awful and his friends are going to betray him and I'm going to be alone and I'm going to be separated from God and this is awful. And he's miserable. But that wasn't where his trust was because if his trust had been in that, he would have never gone through it. Who he was was a man who looked towards the future, a man who, who thought about God, who thought about heaven. That's who he was. He had an earthly body, but the earthly body was not what he was worried about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being awesome. Thank you for being more concerned about the future, being more concerned about being with you in heaven, being more concerned about the spiritual nature than about the earthly nature, Father. I know I am so guilty for being focused on all the things that happen here that are all physical, that I can touch, feel, that I can sense, that I can deal with. All the things, Father, that honestly I can handle. I spend so much time thinking about the things I can do. And that wasn't you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for being in control of everything all the time. Thank you so much for sending your son to die for me, Father, to just have a chance to be with you. Thank you for all these things, and in your son's name, amen. amen.
If a man were to have the opportunity to also take from the tree of life and, and eat, man would be an immortal source of right and wrong, an immortal source of evil. Because he would have life eternal and also know and determine what is right from wrong. So let us pray and then look at some context and more of Genesis 3. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in prayer, God. We pray that you open our hearts this morning to this chapter. Open our hearts to your word so that we will know what is right from wrong from your word, God. God, I pray that we will look to your word as lesson, as instruction for our lives. Father, I pray that this will be your message and not my own. Guide us with your Holy Spirit this morning. Father, we thank you for all that you teach us. Through your son's name we pray. Amen. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. That's in verse 16. Verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. One rule. Right? Maybe two. But the one rule is don't eat. Okay? Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is, it is that one rule that the serpent uses to tempt them. And that leads to the fall. The serpent is a devil in disguise. And he will do anything to tempt you to do what is not favorable to God. Still happens today. Still happens today. Tempting you to do what is not favorable to God. And, the, you know, the point of Adam and Eve's story is that if given the chance, we humans want a life of knowledge and choice more than a life of innocence. We want a life of knowledge and choice more than a life of innocence. As, as, the, as the pastor says, did God really say? Did God really say? Sometimes we even read the Bible and we have that question. Did God really say? We ask that question of the Bible. Sometimes we, 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 we encourage questions, right? But is that really the question to ask? Did God really say? In Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat, eat fruit from the trees in the garden. 
But God did say you must not eat fruit from the, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. You know, there is a model here in Genesis of how Satan operates. That we need to, we need to make sure that we see this model clearly, right? Satan plants doubts by calling into question the commands of God. He plants these doubts in our mind. Did God really say? And so first he asks Eve if God really said that. Next he tells Eve that God lied to her. God lied to you. You will not certainly die. That's a lie. And that's what God, that's what the Satan does to us right now. As we read the scriptures and as we live our lives, when we want to do something that is contrary to the scriptures. We get ourselves sucked into Satan's lies. It still happens today as Satan Satan tempts Jesus' followers to doubt what God has said in his word. We doubt it. We read it and we doubt it. That's unbelievable, we say. We can't, I can't believe that, we say. That can't happen today, we say. That was for back then, we say. And we doubt it. Satan convinces us that what God's word does say is not correct. Not correct to who? On whose standards is that wrong? Not correct by whose standards? By your standards? And so we make, because of Satan, we make God to, out to be a liar. What is interesting is that the serpent did not go to Adam. Isn't that interesting? He went to Eve. He went to the woman. One would think Think that is, is because she was easier to convince. Really? You think? That's not the case. See, she was actually proved harder to convince than Adam. She was much harder to convince. The serpent had to use cunning and logic to sway her. She merely had to go to Adam and say, and say, and, and say fruit. Here's the fruit. Eat. And he's like, sure, good. Easy as that. Here is fruit, eat. The likely reason the serpent went to Eve rather than Adam is that it assumed Adam, having heard this prohibition directly from God would be the more difficult one to convince. But that wasn't the case. Eve learned about the, the, that, that God forbade it. She learned that from Adam. She learned it secondhand. Do you ever find yourself in this situation? 
Do you allow Satan to deceive you? Do you allow Satan to deceive what you know is right? That God forbids something and you just allow him to easily deceive you. How about you, men? Us, men. Here's fruit. Eat. So easy. How about how about sexual sin? So easy. We make Satan's work so easy. We make it a pleasure for him. Galatians 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Eve's reaction, Eve's reaction to temptation is also very familiar, right? The scripture states that Eve looked at the fruit, decided it looked good, and then took and ate it. It is this progression of action. Looking, desiring, and acting on that desire. That's what we do. Anytime we find ourselves falling into sin, the best thing to do is the opposite of what we see here. The opposite of what Eve did. Adam seems to have followed a similar progression. Joining her in this action. And after all, she didn't die, right? So he said, look, she ain't dead. Give me a piece of that. Right? So I guess Satan was right. The serpent was right. You won't certainly die. Hook me up. Right? Because that's what we do when we don't see this immediate thing happen. Because a lot of us, we're like, okay, we're watching. Oh, it's not dead yet. Okay, give me some. Right? So he's like, okay, right away, I want some. Because she, she's not dead. So, okay, she took it, she ate it, she's not dead. Give me. It's like, come on. So easily swayed. But some, something else of note. The tree tempted the woman's appetite. Right? Good for food. Eyes. Pleasing to the eyes. And also tempted her mind. Desirable for gaining wisdom. It is clear that our eyes get us into so much trouble. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. And pleasing to the eye. 
we got to be careful with the things that we look at. We got to be very careful at the things that we set our gaze on. Interestingly enough, the air, the air is ultimately more trustworthy than the eye. It is generally generally less superficial and emotional. Because I can tell you, you can be standing right here, you can see something, and you can get all these ideas of what you just saw. And it can be so false, so wrong. You ever, you ever stand in the distance and see somebody walk into a spider web? And you're like, that guy right there is crazy. That's a crazy person right there. And all that person did is walk into a spider web and they're just wigging out trying to get that off their face. And you're looking at them like, that's a madman. They need a mental institution. Institution. Right? You got to be careful what you see and, and what you think you see. The ear is ultimately more trustworthy than the eye. It is generally less superficial and it's less emotional because what we hear is usually correct. Again, when you wonder why bad things happen, look to Genesis 3 for your answer. My next point is that, my, my next and final point is that because you listened and ate. Genesis 3, starting in verse Verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel." To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe and painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, for, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. 
the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and touch and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden toward the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This changed all creation. All creation. When God discovered what had happened, he cursed creation. The ground, right, was cursed. The serpent was cursed. There will be more pain in childbearing. Right? It didn't say there will be pain in childbearing. It said there will be more pain in childbearing. This is why we have to work the ground for food. This is why women suffer increased pain in childbirth. This is why we die. Right? In this act, sin entered the world. And humanity became unable to be in the presence of God. And so was banished from the Garden of Eden. That was not supposed to be the case. You know, things like natural disasters and disease are evidence of the fallenness of all creation. Sin didn't just affect human relationships, but the entire earth. For decades, corporations carelessly released toxic chemicals or waste into the environment, unaware of just how harmful it would become. In one small town in West Virginia, chemical plants plants waste disposals have had devastating effects on the community. The fish and local livestock aren't safe to eat. And people are developing cancers. We are now seeing the effects of these supposedly small disposals. Entire river systems are destroyed. Animal species go extinct. And our own food supplies can be impacted. And it's going to affect even how much food costs us to purchase. Sin is the same way. Even a single act had a ripple effect for the entire entirety of humankind. For all of humankind, even now, our smallest of sins have a chain effect that we never anticipated or intended. A broken world magnifies, magnifies sin exponentially. Guys, our sin has a great effect. It's not just about us. It has a great effect on people around us. Sometimes I think that when we sin, we just look at ourselves. 
and think of ourselves. It is, it, and, and, and look at it like it's only about us. And I'm talking about from preteen up to, up to adult. When our kids do something that is not right, we need to let them know that they don't just affect themselves. They affect people around them. If there is anything we should learn, it is this. That sin has the ability to change history. Your sin can change history. Like, I don't even know like how that doesn't move some of us. That our sin can change history. Eve's sin may have, may have seemed simple, but her sin was ignoring God. It wasn't just eating an apple. It was ignoring God. It wasn't just eating fruit. It was ignoring God. Adam's sin was ignoring God. And so Genesis, Genesis 4 later on fleshes out what this fallen world looks like. Adam and Eve are now living in exile because of their sin. And Eve has had children, Cain and Abel. And they work as shepherd and, and farmer. Then Cain and Abel have a disagreement, right? And Cain kills Abel. And here we go. The story of our world. Right? And that continues on and on and on. And in Genesis 4 verse 10, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. But here's the interesting thing about that. In the Hebrew... It's not just blood. It's bloods, plural. So when it says your brother's blood cries out from me from the ground, it's talking about your brother's bloods cry out from me from the ground. And what it's talking about, it's, it, so it's, it's not only referring to Abel's blood, but the blood of all his potential descendants who will now never be born. When one person kills another, he has not only killed that person, but also all those who would have descended from him. So our impact of sin does not only affect us. Furthermore, as I stated earlier, even the descendants of the killers or murderers may end up suffering for their ancestors' crimes. So as far as more vast than we would imagine. It's greater than we can ever imagine. Can you imagine the generations of the person that die, dies, that that affects? Can you imagine the, the, the generations of family that's affected by a murderer. And think now think about you that who who sin against one another how that affects your relationships and can possibly even carry on and on. But sometimes we don't think about that. We just 
sin all willy-nilly. Like it's not, it's no biggie. Like it's just all about just us. Well, I'll just tell this lie. Nobody will know. It's just about me. Really? That lie can carry on and on and on and on. Some years ago, Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz was giving a talk to lawyers in Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany, and asked the audience members, how many of you have suffered from the Holocaust? A few hands of several elderly lawyers were raised. Dershowitz then asked, how many of you or your family members have had cancer, coronary problems, diabetes, or a stroke? This time, nearly every hand was raised. Derskowitz paused and then asked, how can you be sure that the cures of those diseases did not go up in smoke in Oskowitz and Trebonka? There was a stunned silence. Following my talk, Derskowitz recalled, dozens of these German lawyers came up to me and said, we too have suffered from the Holocaust. How powerful is that? How powerful is that? Somebody passes away. How do you know that that person, maybe their descendants, could have cured cancer? How do you know? Oh, it's impossible to do that. Really? How do you know? Consider how even our sin can alter the course of history. That last argument you had. What may your relationship have been like if you did not have it? The lie you told. What may have been the outcome for you and others if you had not told, if you had told the truth. And we can go on. But it isn't all bad news. In the midst of God's making the, the consequence of sin very clear, he also demonstrated mercy to Adam and Eve. In the act of their sin, Adam and, and Eve became aware of their nudity. After the course after the, I'm sorry, after the curse, and right before they are banished from the garden, God meets them where they are and provides the skins from an animal to wear. Meets them right where they are. That is the grace of our God. And God covers their shame with the animal skins. God wants to cover our shame. And this sets the stage for the institution of a sacrifice to cover our sins in the presence of God. That is who our God is. God is never just going to leave this unjust behavior. When Adam and Eve sinned and the world was cursed, Adam and Eve's relationship with God was broken, and they had to leave his presence. And it may seem hard to many today to understand why God cannot just put up with sin 
and why it keeps us from being in his presence. But I tell you, in American society, there's an analogy. In modern America, once someone has been found guilty of a sex crime, they become registered on a list of offenders. This registry not only keeps track of where they live, but it impacts where they are allowed to live. Their sin has limited their proximity to other people. Additionally, people do not want to live by a registered sex offender. Studies have found that homes, home, home values drop by 12% when near the residence of a registered sex offender. When a sex offender leaves, homes in the neighborhood rebound to fair market value almost immediately. You know, God is holy. And he is completely unlike anyone or anything in all creation because he is perfect and without sin. His holiness cannot stand to have sin in his presence. He cannot live near it. So in conclusion, Genesis 3 defines the problem that only Christ can meet. Sin brings ruin. Yet there is hope. There is hope. What Adam did, Christ has and will repair. When Jesus comes, nature itself is liberated and freed. In Romans 8, verse 18, it says, starting in verse 18, it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with a glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, but you and I experience liberation even now. No, not, not from the physical changes caused by the first sin, but we can be liberated in our relationships with each other. We can be liberated from competition in our homes, competition in, the, in our churches. We can be freed from that. And through mutual submission to God's will, regain the harmony that reigned before the fall. We can be liberated from the desire to establish our own superiority by dominating others. In Christ, we can be liberated too from blaming, from hatred, and from doing injustice. We can experience this freedom now.
freed from bondage if we seek and find it in Jesus Christ. He that falls into sin is man. He that grieves at sin is a saint. He that boasts of sin is a devil. And he that forgives our sin is God. And to him be the glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, J.D., for that that uh, very powerful message. Um, yeah, we don't typically think that our sin goes outside of our brain sometimes, but it can affect generations and countries and history. And um, yeah, there's so many good points. So many good points. Um, fruit? Anyone? No. All right. So we're gonna be singing. Uh, all the guys were like. Ooh. Uh, so we're going to be singing uh, number 102, Steadfast Love of the Lord. Yeah, let's all stand up. Yes. <laughs> Can we look at the ceiling? Yeah, no. look at the ceiling now. Oh, my goodness. You might, you might die. Oh. All right. 